Well, I want to start my sermon this morning with a hymn. In fact, it's a hymn to him. It's the hymn to him in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 to 21. For as Paul draws the first half of Ephesians to a close, he finishes where he began back in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3, where we read there, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was a hymn to him, a fanfare of praise to his Father in heaven, for he is the hymn that we've just read about in Ephesians 3, verses 20 to 21. At the halfway point of this letter, Paul bursts into rapturous song, delighting in all that he's already detailed in the previous chapters, applauding the God who has made the impossible possible. And so we begin today by considering the who of verses 20 to 21. Who is the he that we praise? Who is the him mentioned in these verses? Well, it's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the but God of Ephesians chapter 2 and Ephesians chapter 1 from verse 3 who bursts in their lives and takes us as children of wrath, adopts us as his sons, and gives us a heavenly inheritance to look forward to. The God who set his love upon us in eternity and died for us in one moment in history. The God who embraces all kinds of people, whose love never diminishes, who saves us and keeps us in Christ, and now lives within us, filling us even to the measure of the fullness of God. This is a rapturous song to a saving God. And yet, let's be honest. Some of us today are more excited by the fact that the hairdressers, coffee shops, restaurants, and caravan parks are opening up, or that the Premier League is back, or that our favorite shops are already reopened. Our hearts have been singing about many things as lockdown has begun to ease, delighting in them, but maybe with less and less thought of him, of our God. You see, our theology, and don't let that word put you off, it simply means what we know of God, our theology shapes our doxology, how we praise our God. What we know of him shapes how we praise him. And if our pulses have not started to quicken even just a little bit more over these past few weeks in Ephesians, or if we have not felt like bursting into song at times when we've begun to understand something of God's incredible love towards us and the dimensions of that love in Christ, then Paul would well ask us, maybe you don't really know him. Maybe you don't really know this God that you claim to worship. And if we're saying, steady on, David, this is all a little bit over the top. Surely Paul is pushing it too far, talking about being filled with God or Christ living in our hearts. Give us something a little bit more straightforward just by asking, are you saved? But maybe some of us even at home this morning are thinking, is this believable or not? But you see, these words of Paul's prayer in verses 14 to 21 of chapter 3 test us. They test us as to whether we are simply professors of our faith. Professing in this way simply means saying we're Christians. Or are we possessors of the faith? 
That is knowing that God is at work in us living daily in the light of his love for us. Do some of us just say we're Christians? Or are we really Christians? Does something rise in us like an audience at a concert bringing a standing ovation to the orchestra or the rock star or the singer? Do we feel like running onto the pits and lifting the name of God high like fans do when they're heroes at the end of a match that's seen them win the trophy? What makes our hearts burst with excitement today? What puts the biggest smile on our faces? What do we dream about, brag about, anticipate most? You see, we were all created with an inner desire to praise. We were all created to worship. There is a song in every heart. We were designed that we might have a hero to brag about for all eternity, namely God. But the main reason people feel awkward about singing or bringing glory to God in their lives is simply that he is not as real to them as Hillary the hairdresser or the chicken dish that you're looking forward to from District 45 or a Mo Salah goal, never mind a sunny day on the sand or our children or grandchildren or the relationship that we're pursuing or the dream house that we think will solve our problems or the paycheck that goes into our account at the end of the month. Whatever we admire most, whatever makes our hearts soar, that is what we worship. Here at the halfway point in Ephesians, we are confronted with Paul's appraisal asking us, who or what do we praise? Is it the God who has overturned sin and death and hell on our behalf, always with our best interest in mind, the saving God, the God full of boundless love and uncontrollable power, working it out throughout all of history with undeserved mercy and doing it all for us? Friends, what makes your heart sing today is your hymn of praise to him. That's the who of the hymn in verse 20. But secondly, we need to ask, what does he do? What does he do? Verse 20 helps us, as Paul gives us an incredible answer. To him, our God, who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. Paul loves piling these words one on top of the other, doesn't he? We've already encountered in Ephesians, just as we were getting over the amazement in verse 19, where we read about the love of Christ that goes beyond us, so that wherever we are, whatever we do, however we feel, he always goes further, higher, wider, longer, deeper. Wherever we think we're at wit's end or going nowhere, or we can't find hope or direction or contentment or peace or freedom from sin or release from temptation, God goes where no one else can. God brings what no one else can. Christ's love stretches into whatever tight corners we find ourselves in. Yes, his love goes further still. Not only does his love go beyond us, but his love runs deep within us so he can fill us with his fullness. And here we read that when we come to him pleading, praying, hearts pumping, minds racing, lives longing, verse 20, he is able. Well, that's a relief, isn't it? Our God is able. He can do something. That's a relief. <laughs> but Paul goes further. It says, he is able to do more. Well, that's God for you, isn't it? Our God can do more. But Paul doesn't stop there. 
he is able to do immeasurably more. He can do things that we can't even work out. It's beyond our measurements. He goes beyond more. What a generous God he is. But Paul's not done yet. He says he is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. What? More, more, and more, and more, and more besides. For those of you who are into your English, this is described as a string of super, super superlatives. In approaching God, we're not just coming to one who can complete a task perfectly and do it well, but to a God who gives over and above our wildest imaginations. Some of you of a certain age will remember the 1993 summer dance anthem, No Limits, by a group called Two Unlimited, with the very original lyrics. No, 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 there's no limits. No, 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 You get the idea? Repeat it again and again and again and again. Well, Paul would approve of such a title to accompany his praise of God the Father. There are no limits to his power, no restrictions to what he can do. There is no end to his incredible capabilities. For the Father's giving exceeds our ability to ask or even imagine. You see, Paul was not interested in any mini mouse Christianity. Paul wants the ordinary, humble Christian to make obedient use of the power of God that is available and at work for us. Let's admit it, in our homes and our minds, we all do it. Oh, how we limit what God can do. And as a consequence, we limit what we ask. And we don't let our imaginations take hold of the greatness of God, who has already blessed us in the heavenly realms. Sadly, we're quite content with the way things have always been. You know, just let me sit in my own pew on a Sunday. That's maybe the, the limits of, of where we think we want to be at the minute. Oh, let me just be there and, you know, drop in my offering and pick and choose the other meetings I like to go to during the week and maybe hope that they sing a few of the pieces that I like and maybe have the minister visit me once in a while and then leave me in peace. But David, don't stir us up. Don't make us think that we need to go further or ask more. Don't let any of that God talk do anything in us. Never mind change us. But that, dear friends, when it stops at that point is not Christianity. That's just sentimentality. That's nothing but gush and fluff, but it's nothing to do with faith. If we search our hearts and have no desire for change in us or others, we're dead. We're dead. We have no spiritual life in us. And it means that we're not Christians. We're, we're children of wrath, happy to do nothing and rather drift to hell rather than live with the dynamic of heaven in our hearts. And how do I know? Well, the original Greek detonates a charge in us because behind these words, twice is the word for dynamite. It actually reads, Now to him who is dynamite, will dynamite or blast more than we ask or imagine. It means that God is an uncontainable and devastating character with an uncontainable and devastating power. And he is ready and able to tear up all our expectations and rip through our lives and do things in us and through us that we never thought possible. 
But the question is, are we ready to ask? Are we ready to imagine turning our puny petitions over to his mighty power? But how do we know that God is as powerful as he says he is? Well, Paul replies quite simply, verse 20, well, look at that power that is at work within us. Look at that power that is at work already within us. What does he mean? Paul is simply saying to the Ephesians, look around you. Look around you, he says. God's power has smashed the ancient Jew-Gentile division. That was huge. It was massive. He's brought the walls of hostility down. They've become one in Christ. God's power has brought some of you from the absolute depths of your beings and see where you are now, seated with God in the heavenly realms. Look around you, he says. And then he says, look at me. Paul says, look at my life. My reason for being 30 years ago, I was a terror to every Christian that I met. And look at me now. I love the church. I pray for Christians. I sing about Christ. Me and my pals had once delighted to crucify him, but now I sing about him. Friends, that's God's almighty power at work in people like us. In the lives of business owners or the stay-at-home mums, the civil servants or the military men, the joiners and the fitters, those working in offices or the fields, young and old, men and women from all sorts of ethnic backgrounds, as they sit in their little house churches dotted all across the city of Ephesus, they look at each other. They looked at each other and they laughed and said, God really has a sense of humor. Putting us together, bringing us under one roof, we have nothing in common but Christ. Only he could do this for us by his mighty, majestic, and immeasurable power. If verses 14 to 19 taught us how to pray in the light of God's love, Verses 20 to 21 teach us what we should ask in the presence of God's power. Look what God can do for people just like us. So how big are your prayers? What is it that we're praying for that defies human logic or our own capabilities? Because we all love trying to fix ourselves, don't we? But what is beyond us? Who or what can we not fix? Who are we praying for whose life and choices and behavior seem out of reach of saving grace? Is our God too small? Do we expect anything from him? Oh, how we need to remember this is the God who opened his mouth and created the universe in all its vast array. He is the immeasurably more God. I mean, for example, do you know how many molecules are in one tiny drop of water? Do you know? Some of you scientists at home might have an idea. The answer is 1.67 sextillion. I didn't even know there was a number like that. That's a number I'm told with 21 knots at the end all in one little drop of water. There are more molecules in a tablespoonful of water than there are stars in the universe. Why have I gone off on a tangent talking about water? Because to us, that little drop of water is just inconsequential. It's just, just a drop of water, that's all. It's part of 
what God has created for our good in the world. And that one little drop full of all those billions of molecules that fills our oceans, that covers two-thirds of the earth, and these mega-molecule numbers came about from the mouth of a mega-god who at the beginning said, let there be, and there was whose creative and controlling power over these same sextillion times sextillion molecules was displayed as he most memorably spoke. Do you remember? On a sea at Galilee, as his disciples feared for their lives in the boat that was being battered by a storm. And what did he say to the wind and the water? Shh. That's it. Be still. And that infinite number of numbers of molecules that we couldn't even count or see, each one responded to the word of its creator. This is the same God who hung on a cross, dying of thirst, who was not even offered one drop, one molecule of water, who controlled them all, and laid down his life for us. This is the God. This is the God who hung on that cross, who created the metal that went into those nails that hung him to that tree. The God who created the man who had him tried and found guilty despite being innocent. He gave them life, and they had him found guilty. He is the same God who created the wood that grew in those trees against whom his back rubbed as his heart sank and his lungs collapsed and he died on that cross for us. But three days later, from the darkness of nothingness, just like the darkness at the beginning in Genesis chapter 1 to 3 emerged new life, a death-defeating life of a God who not only gives life but brings resurrection life. So let me ask us again, is our God too small? Are the prayers that we bring so puny? And John Bloom, staff writer at Desiring God Ministries, writes this, the disciples knew nothing of molecules, but after Jesus had stilled the sea with just a word after the storm, he asked the disciples, where is your faith? The Lord who can do more than we ask or imagine shows us a drop of water and asks us to see him. Our prayers reflect the kind of God that we believe in. So is he mighty? For most of us, he's somewhere between a sugar daddy, a slot machine, a comfort blanket, and a lucky charm. But Paul wants us to be clear. Our God is mighty. Our Father is the creator. Our Savior Jesus holds this world together. Forgive me for using her as an example once again, but her story is worth retelling. Rosaria Champion Butterfield, great name, great lady, great brain. She once wrote, the word Jesus stuck in my throat. As a university professor, I was tired of students who seemed to believe that knowing Jesus meant knowing nothing else. Stupid, pointless, menacing. That's what I thought of Christians and their God, Jesus. 
And I used my post as a college professor to advance my allegiances as a leftist lesbian. My life was happy and meaningful and full. And as I began researching the religious right and their politics of hatred against queers like me, to do this, I would need to begin reading the one book that had taken so many people off track, this book, the Bible. While on the lookout for some Bible scholar to help me in my research, I launched my first attack on Jesus in the form of an article I wrote for a newspaper in 1997. The article generated much hate mail on one hand and fan mail on the other. But I received one letter that defied the whole filing system. It was from the pastor of Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. It was a kind letter. And in that letter, Ken Smith encouraged me to explore further. Later that night, I fished out the letter from the bin and I put it back on my desk where it stared at me for a whole week, confronting me with the worldview divide that demanded me to respond. So when this letter invited me to get together for dinner, I accepted that invitation. My motives at that time were very straightforward. I thought this would be great for my research. Ken and his wife, Floyd, and I became good friends. They bothered to enter my world. We ate together. But before we ate, Ken always prayed in a way I'd never heard before. His prayers were intimate. It was almost as if the person he was speaking to was real. He thanked God for all things. The God that Ken spoke to was holy and firm and yet full of mercy. And so I started reading the Bible. I continued reading the Bible all the while fighting the idea that it was inspired. But the Bible got to be bigger inside me than I. I fought against it with all of my might. And then on one Sunday morning, I sat in a pew at Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. I fought with everything I had. I did not want this. I counted the costs. But God's promises rolled in like sets of waves into my world. And I prayed that night that God would give me the willingness to obey before I understood. I prayed long into the unfolding of a new day. And when I looked in the mirror, I looked to see him. But when I looked into my heart through the lens of the Bible, I wondered, who will God have me to be? And then one ordinary day, I came to Jesus, open-handed. The church had been praying for me for years was there, and Jesus triumphed. And I was a broken mess. But the voice of God sang a love song in the rubble of my world. I weakly believe that if Jesus could conquer death, he could make right my world. And friends, that is what he can do. Whatever mess you are in, or someone else is in, whatever dilemma, or conflict, or opposition, or challenge, God's grace can go deeper still. Do you see the impact of the gospel on this one lady? The Jesus who can conquer death can renew and reverse and recreate the life of Rosaria Butterfield by being befriended by Christian folks who didn't judge her but loved her and the exposure to this compelling nature of God's word. He can do new things in us. He can and he will if we ask. He is still alive and well and he's lost none of his power. But have we asked? 
because his voice still sings a love song over us in the rubble of our world. Our God is mighty. I mean, I could go on with other stories, but one other story strikes me of Mary Nelson, an incredible Christian lady who was broken in spirit by her inability to conceive and have children of her own, who fell on her face before God one day and wept great tears that God would give her children to care for, however that looked. Who, 50 years on, having established through the New Life Community Church in West Chicago, a hopeful perspective, creating community housing that is liable and affordable, rescuing hundreds of thousands of children from poverty, neglect, and abuse in the name of our Lord Jesus. The gospel has turned that place around through the prayer of one lady. He did more than she could ask or imagine. What prayer can we, do we need to pray to this God who is more powerfully present than we imagine? Won't you stop and, and think about that some point during today? What big prayer could we pray? So in our hymn of praise so far, we've already considered the who of the hymn, the what of the hymn, and now we finish out more briefly with the where of the hymn. The where of the hymn. Where is God's glory seen? Verse 21 asks us. The answer is a one-line summary of Ephesians chapters 1 to 3. We read here that God's glory is seen in the church and in Christ Jesus. Isn't that incredible? The unity between the two once again. God's glory is seen in the church and in Christ. Once again, we're confronted by this ever-comforting thought of the unending relationship between God, His Son, and His people, the church and Christ. And we'll come to it in Ephesians 5, described as the bride and the groom, the husband and the wife. In God's eyes, we cannot say the name of one without thinking of the other. Christ died for his church. Christ gave himself up for her. This is a love story that runs throughout all of eternity. Christ is the evidence of his redeeming love in the lives of ordinary people and it displayed in the lives of love of those in the church. I once worked alongside a headmaster in a school who claimed he could tell whose classroom he was in even with his eyes closed, whether it be the smell or the feel of the room connected him to the person of the people who spent most of their days working in there. Now, maybe it was the perfume or the deodorant or the aftershave of the teachers he had a keen nose for. At least I hope so, unless in my case it was the half-eaten sandwiches under my desk or the McCoy's cheese and onion crisps that I didn't get finished or the football socks that hadn't been lifted from the kit bag. But nonetheless, he knew by the smell, or so he said, whose classroom he was in. And you see, the church, as it were, lives out Christ in her life in this world. The church is to look like Jesus and smell like Jesus. We're to be reminders to the world of Jesus so that when others come in among us, they say, there's something about Jesus amongst these people. Christians are to be part of a church community. Acts tells us clearly in Acts chapter 2, you can't be a Christian and not be part of a local church. And whilst today that goes against so many of our privatized, pick-and-mix faiths, annoyed at the state of the church, or what the church has or hasn't done for us, or how it's failed us or frustrated us, the church is the one place where God's glory is seen. 
And we mustn't take that for granted. And we mustn't let that make us proud. Wouldn't it be great if people watching online today are listening into the little law series in the Sunday supplement later, whether they've heard Phil or Jackie lead us in prayer or read the scriptures so movingly, or whether it be the, the other lockdown efforts that we've made online, and then eventually when people come back in among us when that is allowed to happen, begin to say, there's something about those people. They seem to actually know who they were speaking to in prayer. They seem to actually know and care for one another. It was a place where I got a welcome just as I was. They didn't judge me for how I was dressed or where I was from. In fact, I was amazed there were people there who seemed just like me, and that took me aback. I can't put my finger on it, but there was something different about that people and that place. Oh, these verses urge us to pray. God, spare us from becoming churches where we all just look the same and wear the same and come from the same backgrounds and do the same stuff. We are not an orange community in Union Road or La Comfort. We're not even a Presbyterian community or a middle-class white community. We're Christ's community. God's glory is made all the more because of our differences. That's where it's seen. And the church isn't just in one place, like sitting on Union Road or at La Comfort. It has a place. Look at verse 21. And its place is throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. As we finish, we need to be reminded that the church will always be. It mightn't be located where we are now. Buildings might come and go, but God's church will last forever. On April the 2nd, 2020, at the height of the pandemic, American author Dave Mathis summarized it like this. The church will not pass, but coronavirus will. And this is our Father's world. Jesus Christ has all authority in heaven and earth, is building his church, and not even the gates of hell will hold back that final advance, much less the temporary pandemic and the financial freefall. The church is the first and greatest headline. In Christ, we are living the story that we told more than any other for ages to come. We're not only the audience and eyewitnesses. We're the participants. And that's the picture the Apostle Paul paints in Ephesians 3 of the centrality of the church in God's work in the world that is nothing less than stunning. Christ channels his global glory through the church. Here in Ephesians 3, verses 20 to 21. We are not now living in a pandemic age or a digital age or post-Brexit age or whatever new thing you want to emphasize age. This is the church age according to the Bible. And there's no plan B. This is Christ's plan to bring glory to him in the church. Let me conclude with three questions. Number one, how great is our God? Do you trust and believe in such a great, big God? In Ephesians chapters 1 to 3, we've discovered his great, big love, his great, big salvation, and offers us a great, big future in Christ Jesus, the one who died on that cross for us, the one whose control of the molecules of water wasn't even in control of the hands that nailed him to that tree. And he hangs there for us. 
how great is our God? Secondly, let me ask us all, what kind of prayers are we praying? Because the kind of God we believe in will determine the kind of prayers we bring to him. If we have views of a puny little God, we'll bring puny little prayers. If we have views of a great big God, we'll bring great big prayers. And thirdly, how or where is God's glory seen in us? As the church, we're not just spectators. We're participants. We're involved. So where is God's glory seen in your life and in my life today? Christ chose the church to display the glory of Christ. He chose you and me to display his glory. It's here and now that our lives are to be a hymn to him, a fanfare to our Father.